if you can, why don't you turn to Psalm 31. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there might be one on the chair in front of you or, um, or someone sitting next to you who's willing to share. And we'll have the words up on the screen here too. So I understood, because I was away last week, um, there was a, a church in Bundaberg invited me to come and, and preach up there. So I took Jared from the evening service and we, we hoofed up to Bundaberg via Noosa to visit John and Abby. Turns out we wasted the effort because they were going to be here this week anyway. And, um, and then from there, we, we, we went up to Agnes Water to visit a, just a pastor up there who I know and, and sort of have some fellowship with them. They talked us into hanging around. So we watched the State of Origin sitting at a church in Agnes Water and, and our hearts broke alongside everybody else's as, as that shellacking took place. Um, and then just yesterday, I found out that, um, that the town of Agnes Water has a big problem with coastal taipans, and I plan to never go there again. <laughs> so if I'd known that in advance, the plans, the plans might have been a bit different. Um, and while I was away, chaos, I'm, I'm told. We, we, had, um, we had some last-minute changes for the worship team. Philby was very kind to, to worship lead solo for us last week, and we had Mike get sick at the last second and had two guest preachers who were pulled in on Saturday night. So I hope that Yaron in the morning and David Evans in the evening did a great job. I trust they did. They're, they're two very godly men. Um, but that has thrown all of our preaching plans into, into, into disorder. So Mike was, it bothers Mike more than it bothers me. Um, <laughs> Mike was going to be preaching the, the back end of, of Romans 11. Um, all the way up to the end of Romans 11, which would have brought our sort of period in Romans to a close for a little while, and then we'd, we'd pick up chapter 12 a bit later on. Um, but now the plan is that this week and next week, um, I just get to do whatever. And then when Mike comes back from leave, his first week back, he's going to preach that sermon, because it's written, it's ready to go. Otherwise, it would be weird for me to have written a second sermon on Romans 11 this week. Um, so it'll be disjointed, but it'll still, it'll still fly. Um, and so the thought became, well, if we're going to take a break for two weeks from Romans, what are we going to talk about? Um, I, I've noticed a thing. Maybe, maybe you've noticed this too. Um, through the book of Romans, as we've been making our way through that book of the Bible, chapters 1 through 8 really were about defining that core message of the Christian faith, right? Really about defining the gospel, um, explaining that we can be reconciled to God and have our sins forgiven and given eternal life by placing our faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That's what Romans chapters 1 through 8 were really about, it, it, at great depth. But that was, that was the core message of that whole section of the Bible. But then chapters 9 through 11 have been about a, a different theme, haven't they? There's been a bit of a detour, or a, perhaps a better way to say it is a, a bit of a sidestep away from that main line of thought to answer an obvious question, which, and the question was, has God's word failed because the majority of the Jews have refused to come to Jesus whilst the Gentiles are being brought in? That was the obvious question that we've been looking at for, for these last three chapters of the Bible. And in answering that question, Paul has, the Apostle Paul has lifted the lid on a very deep well. Uh, maybe you felt, you felt what I felt there, that, that what's happening in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, is deep waters. It's, it's profound, uh, but it's also confusing. Uh, it's encouraging and disorienting. It's all these sorts of things. And we said right at the beginning of exploring this section of the Bible that these themes have an odd way of disturbing people, um, an odd way of making people feel uh, frightened or disoriented, um, which is a shame, especially considering that these are meant to be um, encouraging things. Um, I know that's been the experience of some of you here. I've had those conversations with you where maybe you've encountered these ideas for the first time and thought, this just sounds so different to my previous understanding of God. How could this be the God I've believed in? Um, and all of those things, you're not the first 
um, to think those things. I know that some of you are still there, even though it's been a couple of weeks since we really were looking at those ideas head on. Um, and here's the thing. Uh, we believe that Satan is quite real, that, that God has an enemy, and that the main weapon that he uses against us are lies. His lies quite often take the form, not of being completely untrue, but of taking a truth and twisting and distorting it. Um, the twisting and distorting usually takes the form of either taking God's truths and, and pitting them against one another as if, they are, as if they are enemies, or taking God's truths in isolation from the rest of God's truth and therefore exaggerating it until it becomes untrue. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to spend this week reminding ourselves of another truth about God found in the Bible that is meant to be understood alongside what we've been learning in Romans chapter 9. Of course, we should hold these things together. They should not be believed in exclusion of one another. Rather, they should be understood in light of one another. The, the whole Word of God, the whole Bible is true. Uh, and in seeing that, there's a lot of comfort to be found. So how, how could we summarize the truths that we have encountered in Romans 9 and 10 um, that are so distressing? Surely the problem is that this part of the Bible presents us with a transcendent and sovereign God. A transcendent and sovereign God. God is big. He's beyond our comprehension. He's, he's, he's so big that it's, it's, it's frighteningly so. He's, he's, not, he's not like us. He's not a mere man. We aren't his equals. Um, God's sovereign governance over his world has given two very specific applications for us, and they both matter. Um, and the first one, considered in the passages that we've just read, would be called election, right? That God's sovereignty um, implies that God elects, God chooses who he will save. And, and the second part of God's sovereignty, which was dealt with less directly, but I don't know about you, but my small group was talking about this quite a lot. Um, God's sovereignty works itself out in what we call providence. Providence is, is what we use to describe God's control over all things, over the flow of history, over the details of your life. Um, God's sovereignty in election and providence are the ideas that we have encountered which many find distressing. And you're not the first if you've experienced that. These are complicated things. They're hard to understand. They are countercultural, um, and they are also not universally held onto by all believers. So depending on what church background you have, that might have been the first time you ever encountered these ideas. Now let's ask the next obvious question. What is it about God's sovereignty expressing itself in election and providence that people find so distressing? What is it that is so distressing about it? Isn't it that? Isn't it that it makes God seem harsh and uncaring? Isn't that the problem? It makes God seem harsh and uncaring, or, or perhaps to, to your mind, these ideas seem unfair and unjust. That's, it just doesn't stack with your idea of, of, of fairness. And because it seems harsh or unfair or uncaring or unjust, because of these things, these ideas can inspire discomfort or even fear. Let me put it to you, that when we experience these things in light of that part of God's truth, what we are doing, what we are encountering, is a satanic lie about God. The reason it is so sad that these ideas would be so distressing 
is because these truths are revealed in God's Bible to us for a purpose and the specific reason why God bothered to even tell us that these were a thing. They would be a thing if we didn't know them. The world would, <laughs> would still play its course. He would still be sovereign if we didn't know. The reason why God has told us these things about himself is explicitly to give us comfort and assurance, to build us up. These, these are meant to be things that we encounter and have our hearts filled with faith and trust and rest. This should be the place where we are able to, free, uh, to, to flee to when life is, is difficult. The lie is that this part of God's truth is being played against another or excluded from another, specifically that God is good. Because God is good, God's sovereignty is a blessing. If God was not good, his sovereignty would in fact be terrifying. Can you imagine an all-powerful God who was not good ruling over this world? You don't want that. But God is good. And because he is good... His sovereignty, yes, even in election and providence, leads me to a comforting assurance that goes beyond mere circumstances. Because what can circumstance do to a sovereign God? I want to take you to a place in God's word this morning where we see God's sovereign governance of this world meeting his goodness in the experience of one of his children. And I hope that we too might take comfort from who God is, even in the confusing stuff. And so to do that, we're going to be uh, turning to the book of Psalms, which so artfully deals in matters of the heart, to Psalm 31. A psalm which is written by King David and reflects on many of the tumultuous details of his life. How do we summarize King David's life in short? (laughs) He worked for the king for a long time who wanted to kill him. And because he believed that the king was God's anointed, he was unwilling to retaliate. And after living that life for a very long time, God killed the king and David became king. This psalm reflects on either David's experience in in trying to escape the the violence of King Saul or David's experience as the king of Israel and the the wars and the, the battles that were involved in his lifetime. And he reflects on these tumultuous years, reflects on how he experienced God's goodness and God's power in the midst of the tumult. It is also one of the Psalms which Jesus himself quoted whilst he was hanging on the cross to declare his confidence in the Father's good plan even as he was crucified. So I would wager that if this Psalm could give comfort to him and express his experience of serving the Father's will joyfully during a time of great distress, then surely, 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 this psalm has a lot to say to and for us. So why don't we get stuck in and have a read? We'll read the whole thing and then we'll circle back. Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. Can you hear him thinking about the years living under King Saul? For you are my refuge. 
Into your hand I commit my spirit. This is the part that, that Jesus quoted on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. For I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Isn't it great? It has been said, I'm not certain who it was, I think it was Augustine, that the, the Psalms are a unique book in the Bible in that not only do they speak to us, but they speak for us. This, this, is, this is a song of praise given to us in God's own words in order for us to learn how it is that we can take our burdens to Him in prayer and worship. It's a very kind thing for Him to have done. I think what we see in this Psalm is a progression which is useful for us in our own life of worship to turn our concerns into constructive prayer. This is, a, this is a thing that you can do when you go home. You can follow this line of, of, of worship. What we see is in this psalm, a beginning with praise, a, a, a song of, of, of confident statements of who God is and what we know about Him to be true. It starts with praise, that's step one. 
Next, it turns to supplication, to requests, step two. And then finally, it turns to finding rest in God's goodness. From a confident assertion of who God is, to requests, to rest. I think that's a good pattern for any of us to know can exist in your own worship life. Why don't we look at how that plays out? David here in this psalm begins with praise. He, he begins his, his song of worship with a statement of what we know to be true about God, regardless of how we are feeling. The psalms deal very well in matters of the heart, but it also engages the, the mind. This song begins with recognizing that God is the big God who can do all things. It's a statement of his character, of his actions in the past, and the confident assertion, God, you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. Let me read it to you very quickly, the first eight verses. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Just, just very quickly, in my time preparing, I did a thing. And I just pulled out, one at a time, all of the confident beliefs that David expresses here about who God is and how he expects to be treat treated. He proclaims, he says confidently, he says to God in prayer, that God is our rock and our fortress. Is this not true? Do we not believe this? God is our rock and our fortress. We are told that it is for his name's sake that he leads us and guides us. That's good news. We're told that he takes us out of the net which the enemy has hidden for us. Have you experienced this? Where you, you, you felt like the devil's just played you and by the mercy of God you escaped. He is our refuge, a hiding place. That he has redeemed us, those of us who into his hands have committed our spirit that we trust in him, not in idols. Is that not true, brothers and sisters? That he sees our affliction and he knows our distress. Your sufferings aren't. He's not oblivious to them. He sees them and he knows them. That he has not delivered us into the enemy's hands. That's not his purpose for your life. that he has set our feet in a broad place. This is who our God is. This is how we should expect him to treat us. This is who we know him to be. How amazing is it that these words were written by King David, who though he was a genuine worshiper, lived before the birth of Christ and could not possibly have comprehended the significance of some of the things that he said. This psalm and its promises were written from the perspective of a believer who is inside the grace of God and yet had no, no ability to understand the fullness of what redemption is. 
And if David back then could understand all of this about what it means to belong to God through faith, then surely now, how much more ground do we have to claim these as true for ourselves, having seen and known and experienced the mercy that comes through the cross of Jesus? David prayed, into your hand I commit my, your, my spirit, you have redeemed me. And it was true, in a sense for him. Jesus on the cross prayed, into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me. And it was so much more true. And now when you and I pray these words to our God, into your hand I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me. How much deeper is the meaning? This side of the cross. Jesus has redeemed us. We are the ones who know the fullness of God's redemption. We can say this more proudly and loudly than, than he. Truly, God has set our feet in a broad place. Isn't that good imagery? I don't know if you know this about me. I have an uncomfortable relationship with heights. And me being me, my way of dealing with that is often to place myself in high places and then to just absolutely fall apart. I, I irritate my friends when I go bushwalking and get stuck on a hill. Broad places are a much better place for your feet to be. Wide, flat, safe, secure, stable. This is the imagery of a broad place. Why would anyone live in the hills? I've got no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, sure. I choose, I choose flat ground. Truly, our God has set our feet on wide, solid, and stable ground and placing our feet on Christ the rock. It is on Christ, the solid rock, we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand, but on him we stand, do we not? This is who we know our God to be. God has not treated us according to what our sins deserve. That's not how he has treated us. He has heard, he has come down, he has rescued and redeemed us by sending Jesus in our likeness to take our sin upon himself, to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross. He has been raised victorious and he has ascended to the Father's right hand and Jesus is even now interceding for us and praying for us. He has sent his spirit to live in us and make us new. Into his hands, we who are Christians have committed our spirit and he has responded by filling us with his. Isn't that beautiful? All who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ will likewise experience this because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can expect this to be true. We can expect this to be true no matter how we feel, do you understand? We can expect this to be true at all times, in all places. This is who God is. This is the promises that he has given us. When we come to worship God, we can start with the truth and turn it to prayer. God, this is who you are. This is how you have promised to treat me. This I know to be true. But... As is so often the case with the Psalms, this song doesn't travel in a straight line. It doesn't go from truth to victory. No, it goes, it goes by a different route, which is because the heart is complex, isn't it? I don't know about you, mine is. Even though I know these things to be true, I still experience doubt and worry and concern. Even though I know these things about God to be true, when, when it all falls apart, I still have a significant period of, of panic, fear before my faith is able to catch up with my circumstances. 
because the heart is complex. Even though we may be convinced in theory that all these things about God are true, there is still some part of us that doubts them. My faith is not yet perfect. And this is urgent, especially when life is difficult, or especially when you encounter things about God that you aren't sure that you like, like we have in Romans. We can turn this too to prayer. What comes next is what I call supplication, which is a, a prayer of request. We can, we can pray God's truth, God's promises to God. That's, that's a totally acceptable thing to do. But we can also pray and ask him to meet our needs and to take our burdens. And that's what David does next. Verses 9 to 18. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. This is the same man who seconds ago was saying, God is my refuge and my fortress. It's the same person. His, <laughs> just like you and I, he's a human with imperfect trust. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength, he's, he's a bit of a sad sack, isn't he? Oh no, my years are spent with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me flee, in the street flee from me. I know how he feels. <laughs> I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. I hear the whisperings of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. For I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Have you ever prayed like this? I, I know who God is. I know what he is like. I know the reasons I have for confidence in him. I have grounds paid in blood to believe that God's intentions towards me are good. And yet when it all falls apart... <laughs> When, when the slandering voices come, come my way to accuse me falsely, when, when it feels as if my life is imperiled, when it's all out of control, God's goodness turns to prayer. God's, God's promises turn to prayers of request. I trust in you, O Lord, you pray. I trust in you. How could this possibly be happening when I trust in you? Let me not be put to shame. My times are in your hands, says King David. Rescue me from the hands of my enemies. Make your face shine on your servant. Shouldn't we expect God to make his face shine on us? If he has given us his son, how could he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What an acceptable thing to pray. Save me in your steadfast love. If we believe that God loves his children, should we not Feel free to ask him to treat us in accordance with that love. Let 
Lord, let me not be put to shame. We know in our heads, we know it, that God's intentions for us is not to put us to shame. That is, that is not the destination that he has for his children. That's not his, that's not his intentions towards you. And yet, isn't it also true that there are times in life where it just seems like that's what's happening? Where I, I just cannot reconcile what I know about God with what I'm experiencing. It just, I am confused by my circumstances. And of course, we will have days like that because we don't know the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, like he does. On that day, did you know that you can pray like this? God, this is God's own words teaching you how to pray. This is, this is him leading you into what it means to worship him on difficult days. If it wasn't for the Psalms, perhaps we would never dare to talk to God like this. But he invites us to. Here it is, God's own words. Grief and doubt expressed to God in God's own words. This is an invitation, brothers and sisters. It is true. It is certain. It is sure that when all is said and done, we will look back on lives lived in the grace of God and say he was faithful. But along that journey, there's going to be days. And on those days, we can draw near to him in confused faith and say, Lord, let me not be put to shame. Don't let the enemy win. Treat me in the way that your love would compel you to. Yes and amen. We pray like this until finally David leads us out of the prayers of requests into a reminder of God's goodness, which leads us to rest. This is where we should go next. How abundant is your goodness? We read in verse 19. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. I created this idea that God's goodness has been stored up for us who fear Him, who worship Him. Have you ever seen a, like a, I just did a bit of country driving the other week, giant grain silo, filled to the brim, stored up. God has stored up His goodness for us. God has worked His goodness. That God's goodness is being put to work in this world on our behalf. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. <laughs> like, I have young children at home, right? So hide and seek is like all the rage. It's, it's the thing. They're, they're less good at it when they're younger and they get better at as they get older. My favorite is the little one saying, like, find me, Daddy, and it's like a cushion over a head with a body sticking out and feet. If you wish to hide, if you wish to not be seen, if you wish to be safe and secure, what do you do? You need to, you need to place yourself in a place where, where you are shielded, where you are protected from the sight of those who seek you. Right? This is what it is to, to hide. We're told here in verse 20 that what is hiding us it's the cover of God's own presence, that we hide in him, that it is the Lord himself who shields us and protects us. What from? From the plots of men. 
You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. What they say about you can't, can't hurt you. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Have you ever felt like that? He can't possibly see me now. That's not true. But you heard my voice, heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. There are a great many things in life which cause us to doubt God's goodness. Most of them have something to do with our loss of control, loss of, loss of perceived security, the shame of reputational damage, the loss of certainty. And on that day, there is rest to be found in the knowledge that God is sovereign and that God is good. God is sovereign and God is good. (laughs) If God was not good, his sovereignty would be terrifying. And if God was not sovereign, his goodness would be of no use to you. If God is sovereign and God is good, and because of this, we take refuge in him. We know that he will hide us. We know that he will cover us. We know that he will wondrously show his steadfast love even if we are in a besieged city. Are there believers in the Ukraine at the moment? Surrounded? For how long now? They can pray this. Even when I was in a besieged city, you heard my voice. Please. My my pleas of mercy. The Lord loves his children, and so we should love the Lord, all his saints, all his children. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms and how it teaches us to pray. There are a great many things in the world today which in our experience of life are quite unusual. They have caused us to lose a sense of security which we previously had. They've caused us to question that the pain and suffering in the world is, has led many to ask questions about your goodness. We pray, Lord, that like King David, that you would take our eyes and lift them up to see 
the big picture and to trust you despite our circumstances and our feelings. Lord, I don't think the solution that you have in mind for us is to ignore those feelings or to ignore those circumstances. They're quite real. But Lord, even even when I feel doubt, help me to trust you, to choose again to trust you because of who we know you to be and how you have treated us. When I encounter in your word, Lord, things which unsettle me because they're uncomfortable, because they're convicting, because they show me that I'm smaller than I thought I was and remove my sense of control. Lord, would I again turn to comfort in your goodness? You have redeemed us, O God. Your intentions for us are good. And by your mighty power, you will see that good through. Help us to even now find rest in you. Whatever part of my my life, Lord, that I came here with this morning that was causing me to be distressed in such a way that I could not see your hand. I could not see your care and your concern. And I could not see your plan. Lord, help me to bring that to you even now and to lay it down and to see my worry in light of what I know about you to be true. In light of in light of your willingness to hear and to come down and in light of your goodness. Rescue us speedily, O Lord. Let those who trust in idols be put to shame. Lord, glorify your name here and in us, we pray. Amen.